I need a million pounds to make a Christmas special of the popular TV show Extras, starring me. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out as well. I'll offer you the hundred thousand you're looking for, but I think I'd want fifty percent. This man invested in a doggy treasure. <laughs> you know something? These guys are going to eat their words because I'm going to make that woman the most successful. If you make her the most successful investment in Dragon's Den, I will eat doggy. What would you like to happen as you walk out the den? To receive the fifty thousand pound for fifteen percent share of my company. From. I'm James and Duncan, if I'm being honest. My, my good friend here, Dominic, will now demonstrate how the system works. Let me just tell you where I am. Go on. You're solving a problem that isn't a problem. We don't need another short, little egomaniac on TV. You can talk. I'm here today pitching for £60,000 worth of investment for 20% share of the company. I like it. Home body waste dispenser. I just want to thank the dragons for pointing out just how stupid we are. It's a set of wings. So that's attached to a hang glider? Yes, I'm sorry, I didn't explain myself. <laughs> that must have got to be the most ridiculous question ever asked by a dragon. <laughs> Shut up. I'm trying out as an investment here. Oh. <coughs> Rupert. <laughs> Ricky, what's stopping somebody else coming along to try and do the same as you? Tell me about it. So why do you need our money? Catering. We do go over on the catering budget. It just... Think about it. to welcome you here. Um, I, let me do a very brief introduction. Uh, James, I think all of you uh, know quite a lot about him, but maybe a little bit more background. Uh, um, James uh, was born in Lahore. Um, his, his book is uh, here, one of his many books is here, uh, and it's my story from Brick Lane to uh, Dragon's Den. He, he started, I think, uh, maybe, I'm not sure how public this is, selling uh, shop fittings and gradually moved up uh, to a very successful career that many of you do know about. He started, in a, started his own recruitment agency, aged only 25, uh, set up a second recruitment agency, and more recently, in 2004, set up a Hamilton Bradshaw, which is a private equity firm. He joined Dragon's Den that we've been seeing a little bit about in, in 2007. Uh, uh, he's also concerned, you know, with some social issues. He's chairman of The Big Issue, and he's uh, launched the Entrepreneurs Business Academy, um, and I think we're all very pleased to welcome him here for a dialogue with me uh, about his experiences and uh, about entrepreneurship and some, maybe some other broader issues. So, hello and welcome to us. I think I'd like to start off um, really with, with a quite general question about how maybe you'd like to tell us a little bit more about how you made that journey. 
from Brick Lane to where you are now. Um, well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's an absolute pleasure to be here this evening. Um, I'm fortunate enough that my daughter, Hannah, also graduated from here. Um, so she forced me and said, Dad, you have to come. This is an amazing place. Um, but I didn't realise there was going to be so many of you. When they said it was a conversation with James Khan, I thought there was only going to be six of us in a room. So <laughs> I'm a little bit taken aback. But um, how it all started, really, was my father had a family business. And like a lot of Asian families, there was this natural assumption that I was going to join the family business. And he had a textile business. And for some strange reason, that, that's not really where I saw my life, working in a factory. So I said, Dad, thanks for the offer. It's really very kind of you. But actually, I think I'd like to do something for myself. Um, he said, no, 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 no. You are joining the family business. This is not a discussion. This is a directive. And um, you know, I was 16 years of age. And I thought, you know, if I stay here, I will end up in the factory. So I thought I knew everything because I was so mature and grown up at 16. So I left home and I left school because I thought, why do I need these qualifications? Because I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Uh, because at the age of 12, I used to take leather jackets from my dad's factory, wear them. And in the um, playground, I would do a fashion walk just to make sure everybody noticed the new jacket I was wearing. And essentially, I'd buy them off my dad and I'd put a £2 markup because my pocket money was 150, so my target was two pounds. And, you know, at least I'd sell maybe one or two a week, um, which means I was doubling my, you know, my pocket money. So just that kind of, at the age of 12, that instinct of, of making money, being in business, was very inspiring. And I think the idea of being your own boss and being in control of your own destiny, I knew right from the word go. So at the age of 16, I thought, whether I had a degree or not, would it really matter? Um, so I left and, and went out into the wilderness with £30 in my pocket because when I left home, my father was clearly not very excited. And I think both him and I absolutely believed that I would go off in a bit of a half, I'd stay with some friends, stay there for a week, and then say, look, Dad, I'm really sorry, I was being stupid, you know, I'll come back. But unfortunately, I never went back. Well, we were talking a little bit before, uh, before this started about... Um People, how you attract people, how you recruit people, how you how you engage them in your businesses. Maybe we should go back, you know, re revisit that for, for the audience. Sure. I think one of the things that, that have been probably the, the most eye-opening experience in business for me, so essentially I, I set up a recruitment company um, called Alexander Mann, and you may wonder why Alexander Mann. Um, when I set it up in the mid-80s, there were lots of recruitment firms like Michael Page, Robert Walters, and everybody named their firm after themselves. So there was a Michael Page and a Robert Walters. But when I set up, I thought if I set up a firm called James Khan Associates, and I called a client and said, hello, it's James from James Khan Associates, it would be really obvious there was only one of us. If I called it Alexander Mann, that meant there was three of us. So from the word go, we'd expanded quite quickly. So... And, of course, you know everybody wants a discount. So the minute they ask for a discount, I could say, well, could you leave that with me? I need to speak to Alex first and get back to you. <laughs> and um, so I set up the headhunting firm. And, of course, during that journey, as a headhunting firm, you spend most of your time interacting with some really smart people. And one of the things that I learned in, in that business is that there's a concept that people believe 
that businesses and products is what creates success. And I came up with this crazy illusion that actually it isn't about the business, it's actually about people. I believe it's people who create success, not products or service. You could have the best product in the world, but if you don't have the drive, the determination, the conviction, the belief, and you've got that something inside you that is burning to, to see you through and you're prepared to make sacrifices to create success, the product doesn't work by itself. And having built Alexander Mann, after about seven or eight years, I decided I wanted a bit of a change of direction in my own career. And so in 92, I recruited a chief executive and, and sort of gave him the keys and said, Look, why don't you run the firm? Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out and start another 10 businesses. So I've got a vision that between 92 and 2002, I'm going to start 10 new firms. And as a headhunter, as I'm out there meeting all these really talented people, rather than placing them for a fee, when I meet somebody really smart, I'm going to ask them that really ridiculous question and say, if you're so good, why don't you do this for yourself? The answer will always be, because I don't have the cash. So, well, if cash wasn't an issue, would you do it? And of course they'd say yes, and then I'd say, well, why don't I provide the capital, and you can start your own business, and I'll give you an equity stake. So, one of the businesses that I set up, we, Alexander Mann, was only one location in, in the West End in London, and like any entrepreneur, I had this vision of being global, and I should have offices all over the world, and I met somebody who was working in a firm in America, uh, MRI International, that had 600 offices, and I'd never opened a second office before, but I thought what I would like to do is become an international business, so I hired this chap called Doug Beauty, who I met in America, except again, he was the marketing director of a public company, and said, why don't you think about doing it for yourself, let me back you, and we'll launch a new firm. And the one thing that I did was in each situation I gave them an equity stake because most people for some strange reason are very obsessive with the concept of equity. But the key message for me is when you start a firm, it costs a hundred pounds. So the equity is worth a hundred pounds. So if I give away 50%, what I've given away is 50 pounds. So to me, it's not a huge deal because I would rather own a small percentage of a big business than 100% of nothing. And the key message, I suppose, that I can share with you is the idea in itself is worth very little. Ideas are a dime a dozen. Lots of people, especially students, come up with amazing ideas and they become really obsessive because they believe that I can't tell anybody about the idea. The idea is what it's about. The idea is only 5%, 95% is the execution of how you create the idea into a business. So essentially, I was starting people, giving them an equity stake, and in that particular case, we launched a business called Humana International, and that was going to be our global brand, and, and the reason, because we thought Alexander Mann as a brand name doesn't stretch internationally, we needed a generic name. So we launched a company called Humana International, brought Doug in, he became the chief executive, gave an equity stake 50%, you may say it's a, a huge amount, but it was a huge amount of nothing at the time. And we started in 92, and by 99, we'd grown that firm to 147 offices in 30 countries. So actually, the way I look at it, my 50% was worth a fortune. So conceptually, it worked amazingly well for him, fantastically well for me, but what I learned was businesses were about people. It was he who created that success. 
It was his drive, his ambition, his determination. And what I did as the financial partner was facilitated that concept and that idea. So my journey, essentially, since 1992, so it's been nearly 18 years, I've spent my time really looking for talented people that I invest in, who I believe have got that drive, that hunger, that passion. And what you see in Dragon's Den is really an extension of what I do. Well, a university is not the best place to argue that uh, ideas are dime a dozen, but um, <laughs> but but, um, but they are. <laughs> maybe. Um, I just want to maybe take take this just a little bit further. So this this point a little bit further. So, so you've got a guy, and he's got an interesting idea. What else are you? Look, I mean, what else are you looking for in the creation of a successful business? I think. So I meet. So, so, what was it about this particular individual? Um, there was another business that I set up, uh, and it was a girl actually who worked within the organisation, and she'd only been with us about six months. So this is a real, the classic startup concept. And we were running a headhunting firm, and she believed that the industry of headhunting was going to change. She believed that the recruitment industry, which is very transactional, would become more outsourced. She believed that large international organisations would no longer use individual firms, that they would virtually outsource the entire function. Now, in 1995, that seemed far too ambitious for me. I didn't believe it would happen. But she approached me one day uh, near the photocopy and said, James, I've got this great idea. I think Alexander Mann doesn't know what it's doing. I think it's behind the times. Um, I think the industry is really changing. I thought, that sounds really bright. I said, sorry, how long have you been with us now? Six months. Okay, so you're very qualified to, to make those statements. And um, have you actually placed anybody? Have you generated any fees yet? Uh, no, I haven't yet. I said, okay, so you're a virgin, no experience, and you're telling me that we've got it all wrong. Okay. She said, but look, let me just give you my pitch. Anyway, really, really passionate about, I believe this is you know, how organisations will run, and I think it's going to be answered. Anyway, I listened to it for 20 minutes and thought, my God, maybe she's got a point, but it wasn't something that necessarily I saw, which is really what the essence is. It's about what you feel. You know, it's, it's that love, it's that affection, your, your belief. And she was so energetic about this vision. Anyway, so I went to the board and I said, listen, I'd like to, to back one of our people. Um, you know, she's got this idea. And the board said, you know, what's her track record in outsourcing? I said, I'm not sure she could spell the word, but she really does believe passionately. And they said, does she have any track record in, in sort of outsourcing procurement? No. Uh, how long has she been with us? Uh, six months. And they said, James, and you'd like us to invest in, in that, would you? I said, you know, it's a, it's a concept. It's a service business. It's very low barrier of entry. The capital cost is going to be very high. Anyway, they said, look, from our perspective, it, it's a no, but it's entirely up to you because it's just not big enough for us to consider. So I went back to Rosalind and said, listen, the board unanimously agreed that we should do this. They've given me 100% backing. Um, we have an empty office on the third floor, so why don't you take that? Uh, the company's called Alexander Mann, so we'll call it Alexander Mann Solutions because it's kind of a bit more generic. And um, I'm going to give you six months to, to, to show me you can do it. And just as she was leaving, she said, oh, by the way, do, do I get equity in that? I said, for Christ's sake, you've been in five minutes. You haven't done a deal. What equity in the business. And as a throwaway comment, I said, okay, look, we'll give you 10%. Um, thought, you know, okay, fine. And um, the next morning she said, James, there's one question I forgot to ask you. Do I get my own business cards? 
<laughs> I said, now, Rosie, you're talking cash. That's a different issue. What, what is that going to cost us? £47. So I took out 50 quid. I said, there you go. And that was the investment. Um, the key issue was she absolutely believed that she'd recognised a gap in the industry. Nobody was outsourcing at the time. So what was I looking for? I think, A, conviction, belief. She'd researched it. She 100% believed that that's where the market was going to go. And this girl, I'm not exaggerating, literally worked seven days a week. You know, if I got in the office at eight, she would be there at seven. If I left at eight, she'd be there at nine. I got emails at the weekend, you know, evenings, absolutely driven. In 2000 and 2002, um, we sold that division, which was called AMS, um, and we sold it to Graphite Capital, and it was turning over 400 million a year. Um, and we sold it for something like 93 million pounds. Now, imagine if I hadn't have backed her, she would have been my biggest competitor, because when I sold Alexander Mann, it was only turning over 130 million. So she grew a business three times the size of mine, but actually for me, it was about understanding that certain people have something in them that they believe so passionately in. And, you know, I, I used to explain to the board so often that one of the challenges in Britain is that lots of organisations, I believe, have people like her. The problem is, in corporate organisations, there isn't that structure that allows people to flourish, to come through, that, that, who've got that kind of entrepreneurial talent. If you look at all the large international firms in America, they all used to work for somebody else. And what happens? They have this amazing idea. And the first instinct is, I've got to do it somewhere else. What I wanted to do is capture and harness that passion within our organization to say, we're happy to back you. And, and you can imagine, when I gave away that throwaway 10%, she did very well out of it. And you know, we did OK too. <laughs> well, I can see. Um you know, there, there are lots of possibilities for, for success. What are, the, are there any, 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 any clear uh, pitfalls that you'd be advising people to avoid? Or are there, can you give maybe some examples of when people have come a real cropper? Well, I don't know about them, but, but I've come a cropper more than once, so I, I've got a history of getting it wrong. Um, I went through a period a few years ago where things were going really, really well, and, and every deal I did seemed to be working, and and for a second, I started to think that my initials, JC, weren't James Khan, but they were Jesus Christ, and I could walk in the water. <laughs> and uh, somebody rang me and said, listen, I've got this great business for you. Uh, it's a sandwich shop called Benji's. And, uh, and I thought, oh, you know, great sandwiches. I, I, I get that. You know, how big is it? You know, it's got 150 branches. It's got all these franchise shops. It's got this huge factory, 300 people in Bow. Turns over like 40 million quid a year. So I said, you know, how much is that? It's half a million pounds. And by the way, the previous private equity firm paid £26 million for it. So immediately, as any entrepreneur, I think, God, it's cheap, isn't it? But the first question I forgot to ask myself is normally when something is cheap, it's always cheap for a reason, which I clearly didn't think about. Anyway, they said there's a bit of a problem, though, because the, the firm, KPMG, who was selling it, um, are going to sell it on Friday. So this is Monday, so on Tuesday I go and see the, the management, on Wednesday I meet the accountants, <coughs> Thursday I meet the bank, and on Friday I buy the business. So I break every single rule in the book. No research, no planning, no preparation, and zero due diligence. 
Anyway, when I buy this business, it's losing £100,000 a week. And that's why it was cheap, clearly. And uh, so you can imagine every Friday I'm at the cash point, you know, drawing out the cash back in the business. Anyway, I kept the business for 26 weeks and I tried everything to try and turn this business around. The problem is I knew nothing about food. I knew nothing about retailing. The business model, because what I didn't realise is the consumer is very brand loyal. So I thought, well, if we're not taking enough money, let's increase the price. So our cheese sandwich was 170. Let's put it up to £2.10. The problem is at £2.10, the cheese sandwich customer goes to Pret, you know, because that's the next price bracket. I thought, great, well, let's change the brand. Well, changing the brand was £7 million because to change the brand across, you know, 170 outlets, not cheap. Um, you know, should we add salads? Should we, should we change the menu? No, you can't do that because Benji's is really the cheap and cheerful in the market. So if I can't change the brand, I can't change the product, I can't change the price, if somebody had told me that in the beginning, I might have saved a bit of money. Um, so I think the, the question really for me is, that understanding that business and understanding the model and doing the research. So clearly you can imagine when people ring me up now offering me retail businesses, uh, you can just imagine how quickly I run because it's one area I wouldn't touch because the capital expenditure in retail is just too high. You know, the market I think has evolved, the whole online situation, but the cost of building a brand is just too much. So I think for me, when you're looking at business, it's just absolutely making sure you understand that business model and understand how it comes together. Because sometimes changing the model when you've got that sort of infrastructure is not easy. So you need the passion <coughs> and, you need, and you need to understand, you really need to understand the business that you're looking at. The, the business model itself. The business model yeah. itself, they're the key elements. Yeah. Sorry, Sol, are you, are you thinking of going to business, are you now? Oh, well. There's <laughs> a sense in which I already have. Um, but, um, maybe, last question on, on, this, uh, on this sort of area. I'm just wondering, I mean, a lot of people in this room might be thinking, you know, they've come to the end of their degrees and they're thinking, well, maybe I should go into, into, an, are there, into an entrepreneurial activity of some sort. Are there any particular areas or fields do you think are up and coming, or do you think actually every, you can be an entrepreneur in any area? Um, I think you could be an entrepreneur in anything. I mean, I, I, well, as you can see from Dragon's Den, I see all sorts of people with their weird and wacky ideas. Um, so I, I don't think there's any one particular space. Um, you know, listen, for God's sake, you can sell dog treadmills and make money. So where are the boundaries? Uh, so I think it really depends on you. Because I think different businesses suit different people. You know, some people are naturally wedded to products. Some people are more wedded to services. Some people are very technical. Some people are very financial. So I think you need to find something that brings out the best in you. I, I'm not a strong believer that if I said to you, you know, I think telecoms is great, then you will rush off to telecoms. Because I don't think that necessarily works for everybody. I think industries and businesses, you know, are correlated to you, your skills, your passion, your knowledge, your experience, the things that work for you. And I think there has to be a marriage between you and the business. With, at LSE, you know, we, we have a lot of students here who are interested in entrepreneurship. Um, how, 
how do you think, and, and the government, you know, we had these cuts, the government has got a view now that the private sector has got to grow to, to fill the space that's going to be left vacated by the public sector. And obviously entrepreneurship might be expected to play a big role in that. How, have you any suggestions on how to make Britain a more entrepreneurial country and maybe what role an institution like this might play in it? Um, I mean, I think LSE already plays a very big part because I think you, you, you produce, inspire some amazing students. And I think the role that you play is, is to develop, to train, to inspire and give them a platform from which they can grow. I think, you know, and I believe very passionately uh, and with conviction that Britain is in a very difficult position today as a country because if you imagine, if you were walking down a street and it was called the world and you walked past a shop and it was called America, I think you'd have a pretty good idea what was in the window. And as you walked along and you saw another shop called China, I think you'd get a feel of what the shop window was. As you walked down this street and you came across a shop called Britain, ladies and gentlemen, what's in the window? And please, not all at the same time. <laughs> and there lies my answer, not one hand. So that just tells you from a global economic perspective, what is Britain being identified for? What is it that we do? And there lies the opportunity. So I believe personally, Britain's place should be about entrepreneurship. It should be about innovation, science, technology. We should be the knowledge workers. And I think that's the skill that, that where I see opportunities. And I think as, as a government, I think Britain needs to recognize its place within that global village. Because if it has no identity, it's a bit like having a business or a brand that nobody knows about. You know, and the fact that you've got a room completely full of people, not one person put their hand up and say Britain should be known for X, to me says it all. So I believe that that's where the opportunity lies and I think if the government recognised that today that entrepreneurship is the only place that's going to create jobs, it's the only place that's going to stimulate the economy because we know historically the public sector has actually driven jobs. Well that's not going to happen now. The corporate sector is under huge pressure in terms of margins, cost space. So most of them, to me, are downsizing. So the challenge, I think, the opportunity, it really rests with the entrepreneurs who I think will get Britain out of this position. So I think we play a very key role. What the government needs to do, in my opinion, is, is to do a little bit like what America did with Silicon Valley. The biggest challenge is that we've got great people with some great ideas, but we have no venture capital community in this country. There really isn't that f facility the banks are not lending, you know, so really you're down to family and friends. Well, if the entire economy of this country, if the future of Britain rests with family and friends, I mean, come on, there's something it's missing there. for my friends, but um, I think you're particularly well known for, for um, you know, your public face on, on Dragon's Den, and maybe just to give ourselves a moment, we'll uh, see some of your... Beard stroking, yes.
here today to secure a £100,000 investment for a 20% stake in our new business, Motor Mouse. And we spotted a gap in the market for an executive level, beautifully designed and well-engineered wireless computer mouse. I like the mouse, but I don't think it's big enough. But I really do like you guys, and I'm very inspired by what you've done. And I'm just sitting there thinking, could I put some of my products into your business and leverage your expertise? So if I put in £120,000 into that company, then in theory I'd be buying a 50-50 stake. We are uncomfortable with doing a straight 50-50 split, mm -hmm. frankly. I think if we could do 60-40, we'd, we'd be very happy to accept now. You got yourself a dip? Thank you. Excellent. Good money. Another one bites the dust. <laughs> we are the owners of Peel Engineering. Today we would like to pitch for £80,000 for 10% of our company and a little piece of history. Peel Engineering own the Guinness Book of Records, world's smallest production car of all time. I went to see the head decision makers of Ripley's, believe it or not, very soon into the meeting. We had an order for two cars at £15,000 each. The footfall increase was considerable and very soon afterwards we had another order for 12 more cars. What we'd like to do is offer you from our stock of eight cars, one of each of the models, which you may want to use for a charity purpose and 30% of our company. Got yourself a deal, guys. <laughs> Good. Great. Again. So, so, just drawing on your ex experience now, a few years with uh, Dragon's Den. I mean, you've already given a hint of this, but what are you looking for? I mean, what something that makes money. Yeah. Okay. How do you find it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I must tell you a quick story. When um, when I was offered to do Dragon's Den, um, for some strange reason, I thought that when you go into the den, that you get like a pack. You know, you get the chap CV, you get a business plan, a bit of history. Um, as I walked in on the Monday in Pinewood Studios and walked into the den, um, literally you go straight in, sit down, bit of makeup, five minutes later the guy walks up the stairs. So I'm looking around thinking, no, nobody's got a pack. So I nudged Duncan and I said, where's the pack? He said, what bloody pack? He said, you don't get a pack here. And I said, surely you don't just watch these people walk up the stairs and you hand them a cheque for a hundred grand. He said, absolutely. <laughs> Something, these are a bunch of twats, really. <laughs> this is their own money and they're just going to hand out. Anyway, so I thought maybe he's just taking the piss. I thought maybe I'm new. You know, Richard Farley obviously wasn't that great, so they're just kind of breaking me in gently. <laughs> and um, so I, I sit there literally all day and that's exactly what happens. Anyway, my problem is I actually do this for a living, so I kind of understand that you've got to follow a procedure and you've got to do your due diligence. Anyway, the entire week goes by. I'm there for five days. I haven't done a deal. Anyway, so on the Friday, as I'm getting dressed, uh, my daughter says, by the way, Dad, how's it going? I said, actually, not that great. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I haven't done a deal yet. I said, you know, you can't believe that these people actually sit there they come up with these ridiculous ideas and they just hand this money out. There's no business plan, there's nothing. He said, Dad, you can't, you can't sit there and not do a deal. 
what will the neighbours say? <laughs> what will our friends say? I said, darling, but also, you know, this is like real cash. It's like, it could be 150,000. Anyways, I'm driving to Pinewood that day. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I, I need a plan. I need a strategy because I've got to do a deal. So I, I come up with a very well thought through, very considered, very strategic plan on how I'm going to do my first deal. As I walk into the den, bit of makeup, the first person who walks through the door, I'm just going to say, I'm in. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, that was the dog treadmill. <laughs> True story. <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> well, you, you obviously do know what you're looking for in an idea. Allegedly. <laughs> well, you're able, you know when to say no and when to say yes. I mean, you may not always get it right. But you, you're, so what is it that you're looking for? What's defining a backup idea? For you? Um, so let me, let me give you the one that you think is ridiculous, which is the dog treadmill. So let me tell you the actual, what's actually happened to that investment. So firstly, you know, of course, I, I, I was a bit ridiculous because she was the first person. But when she made her pitch, one of the things that, that when you say what I look for is the question is, why does this person need to be successful? And to me, that's a question that I think is so important because just because you want to make money does not mean to me you'll be successful. I think there has to be a genuine burning desire within you. There has to be something that means that success is, is important. And because of that, good evening. Because of that, you need to have that conviction. So in Sammy's case, when she was giving her pitch, I said to Sammy, can you explain to me, Sammy, what is it, why is it that you are driven to do this? And she said, look, James, I, 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 you know, I live in a council flat, I have three children, uh, I work in a waitress, as a waitress during the day in a restaurant, and in the evenings I, I go online and I, I sell my dog treadmills. And I said, but why? What, what, what is it that's driving you to do this? And she said, I, one of my daughters, Elizabeth, is really, really bright, and I would love for, for Elizabeth to go to a private school because I don't think that I'm, as a parent, bringing out the best in her. And the cost of private education is just so expensive that my waitress salary, I can't afford that. So for me, if I can make enough money through what I do, it will, give, it will enable me to achieve something that's really important to me. And to me, that was a reason why I believed that she would work and she would do anything that it took because the end game meant so much to her and I think so many people I would say if I'm blunt the vast majority of people when I ask them that question which is why you generally get a very woolly response you know maybe it's about money or maybe it's about I want a bigger house or a nicer car but the fact of the matter is if you don't have that what difference does it make but is it, if Elizabeth didn't go to private school it would make a lot of difference to Sammy the mother Anyway, and I, I just bought into that. I, I felt strongly. Now, remember, it has nothing to do with the product. It has nothing to do with the pricing. It was about her. And I believe that this woman had a genuine reason to be successful. Anyway, so we make the investment. And, of course, I come out. And, 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 and everybody's completely taking the piss out of me. You know, James, what are you doing? You know, we're supposed to be these very successful entrepreneurs. We know what we're doing. And you put 100 grand into a dog treadmill. So Peter Jones says to me, let me tell you. You sell one of those, and I'll eat a dog biscuit. <laughs> so I said, you know what, Peter? I'm going to prove a point to you. I might be new, but I'm going to show you that if you back the right person, you can sell anything.
Anyway, so I'm feeling a bit under pressure now because it's obviously my first deal. And I go back to the office, I go to Hamilton Bradshaw, and I said, guys, get all my team together. I said, you'd be really pleased to know uh, I've, I've done my first deal. <laughs> so, of course, every, you know, huge anticipation. I've, I've invested in chockbox or wrap strap. Uh, no, actually, it, it's a treadmill. So they think, great, you know, sports, leisure, etc. You know, the, the, the leisure market's really big. Anyway, I let them carry on for a bit, and I said, actually, I forgot to mention something. This one's for dogs. <laughs> and they're all staring at me, thinking, he put 100 grand into that. I said, anyway, listen, forget that, but I need your help. We need to find a market for this product. So we get the whiteboard out. Anyway, somebody comes up with, what about the Blind Dogs Association? What about the police force? What about the army? What about people in Paris, you know, because they're really dog lovers? Anyway, we've got all these... <laughs> Did I really say that? No. And... Uh, <laughs> So we come up with all these markets, and I've got my, my very sophisticated investment management team in a private equity firm focused on selling dog treadmills. And you will be amazed. We, the previous year, before we invested in Sam, she'd sold 23 machines. So that entire year, she'd sold 23. We were buying them from Taiwan for £340, and we were selling them at 1700 because... Um, I'm very religious, uh, and, and margin in our religion is really important. We have to protect the maximum margin. And uh, anyway, so <laughs> very orthodox. And um, so we, we focused. Anyway, the, the following year, we sold 493 machines, which I thought was amazing. Um, this year, we've sold, I think, 890-odd machines. Um, she's now in Sweden, Ireland, in America... There's a huge chain, I think, called Store City. Um, she's in that chain. Um, we have um, the, the, the show um, Crufts. We sell, on average, about 100 machines at Crufts every time the show comes on. So, actually, she's doing very, very well. We've just bought out um, a new one for Harrods. Um, so Christmas, at Christmas, when you're thinking about what am I going to buy for Christmas, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please visit the pet stand in Harrods because we're going to be there. Um, so actually, even that is an example of what you can do. You know, she, and, and you'll be delighted to know, Elizabeth is now in private school, so she's met her objective, and, and that drive is what really, to me, enabled her to do that. Yeah, well... Slim dogs as well. I was going to say, do you Um, have any pets? Can I I interest you? Do you? Um, (laughs) How's he doing? He's very very fit, actually. (laughs) At those prices, I think he can walk on the. uh, (laughs) I could do you a deal. Have you had any particular idea? Not not the trend, and not any other really interesting idea on the den that's really tickled your fancy that you've really liked. Um, there was a couple actually that came in that I thought was quite amazing. Um, they very normal-looking couple, kind of quite smart, spoke good English and, and presented very well. And they started their pitch and they said, you know, hi dragons. Um, we we think we've solved a major problem that exists in this country. Uh, we think that that there's a big problem with married couples in the United Kingdom that um, they they don't get a proper night's sleep. And, and we think the reason is because either the husband spends too much time on the wife's side of the bed or the wife spends too much time on the husband's side of the bed and we have a cure for that. So I'm kind of sitting up thinking, you know, this must be quite interesting. Anyway, so they take that black cover off and, and there's a bed and it's got a white bed sheet and there's a black line down the middle. 
So I did exactly what you just did. And I thought, and? And uh, so she said, that's it. So I'm thinking, okay, this is national television. You have to ask a very intelligent question. Uh, so I'm trying to think, what do you ask somebody with a black line and a bed sheet? So I said, and, uh, and, and, and how long have you been working on this? She said, two years. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm quickly running out of questions. Where do you plug it in? So I said, I said, well, do you mind if I have a look? Because of course you think it's going to explode or vibrate. Or so. so I'm feeling, because I'm thinking there must be something here. Maybe it's me. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it was a black felt line on a white sheet. So I sit down and I said, have you sold any? She said, yes, very confidently. Uh, she said, I've sold three. It's a fantastic. Uh, and, 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 and who was that too? She said, my mum bought one, my sister bought one. And uh, I said, look, uh, for me, for those reasons, <laughs> I'm out. And, uh, and Peter Jones, I thought, only asked one question. He said, have you ever interacted with the human race before? <laughs> And for those reasons... <laughs> I'm going to move us on now to the, your new book. Fantastic. Um, is this a uh, plug opportunity? It's a plug, <laughs> this is a plug opportunity, yes. Um, um, James has is, is just written a book on which I think will be a great interest to our students as well, entitled How to Get the Job You Really Want. Um, one of the quite interesting things, I think, you know, in, in several of our degrees, we do a lot of things where we're trying to get students to think about how to present themselves, how to uh, um, go along to employers and so forth. And, and actually, it's surprisingly difficult. It is indeed like persuading a dog to uh, uh, go somewhere it doesn't want to go. The students won't, won't think about this, or not much. It's surprising. They, they, when they get to think about it, maybe it's too late. So I would be very interested if you could perhaps explain a little bit about the message of this book. Mm -hmm. um, as you can imagine, I, I've been now in, in kind of employment for 25 years and have experienced pretty much every aspect of getting an opportunity, whether it's getting an investment, you know, investing in a business, getting a job, and running recruitment companies pretty much all over the world. So the concept of somebody getting a job you know, it's a subject I really understand passionately. And what I find really, really strange that when you go for a job, you know, to me, this is a literally a life-changing event. It, it's quite a big situation. Now, you would think that anything that was going to be so life-changing that you would plan for, you would prepare for, you would think about. Recently, one of my investment companies was looking for a finance director. And it's quite an important position, and, and it's quite a big investment for us. So I said, I'll tell you what, let me also dial me in onto the interviews. And I met three candidates, and all three candidates asked the same question. I said, did you, before you came in for this interview, did you download our accounts from Companies House and spend three pounds to prepare yourself for this interview? What do you think they all said? No. Now, please tell me, why would you not do that? So some things to me, which I think are so basic when you're trying to secure an opportunity, that if you're a finance director, if he was sitting in front of me 
saying, you know, I understand in the last three years, you know, the margins of your organisation are actually coming down. What is it that that's actually influenced that particular trend, James? I, immediately, you know, I would quickly sit up because that's quite an intelligent question. How the hell did he know that? But the truth of the matter is, information is so readily available, why do people not do it? How many people... So it, to me, what I've done is I've taken my 25 years of experience and every single situation, every lesson that I've learned on how somebody has managed to secure an opportunity where they've done something different, something unusual, because I do think that getting a job is a process. You know, just like what you've been studying at LSE, everything has a methodology, has a process, and I think getting a job... So let me give you a, a really silly example. If today you wanted a job and I was advertising a position, the standard thing is you would send me a CV and you would email it to me. Yeah? How many of those do you think I'm going to get? Thousands. So what are the odds on me picking your CV? Really slim. But if that was a job you really wanted, imagine if you hand-delivered your CV to my office at 11 o'clock and said, you know, private attention to James Khan. How many people do you think, or how many letters do you think I would receive at 11 o'clock? Because I've already had my morning post, so that batch is gone. So this is an odd time in an odd, during the day, and you deliver that by hand. The receptionist is going to call my PA, and she's going to hand deliver me that envelope. And I actually will probably open it, because how many do you think I get? Very few. So all of a sudden, you can get your CV run in front of me just by thinking through the fact that people are all going to do the same thing. And, you know, it, whether it's in life or in business, you have to observe the masses and do the opposite. Think of something that nobody else is likely to do. If you're going to come along for the interview... So, for example, somebody said to me not so long ago, um, at the interview, which I thought was a brilliant question, and she said, um, James... This is my third interview. How have I done? No, it's the most simplest of questions, but it absolutely put me on the spot. Um, because it's the, the most simple question that very few people actually ask that direct question. How have I done? Because think about the response. Now, what I, if she hadn't have asked that question, I would say, look, really nice to see you. Thank you for coming in. You know, we'll get back to you. We've got you know, a number of people that we're evaluating. But there and then... Um, I said, well, actually, I think you, you know, performed very well. Um, and she said, will you be offering me the job? <laughs> uh, but I thought it was fantastic. What did you say? I said, now that you've asked that question, can I reflect on that? She said, is there anything that, that, that you haven't seen in me, James, that you've seen in other candidates? I mean, just fantastic questions. And literally, I got kind of engaged in the conversation. And just those two or three questions just meant to me, this person has just got their ability to swim the second mile. And by the time we got into reception, I was shaking a hand. I said, between you and I, I said, you know, we probably will be writing to you. Um, because she just turned that position around. Just by, because I think she took a view and thought, if I don't say it now, I'm just going to be like every other candidate and what's going to happen is they're going to either write to me and whether I get it or don't get it. Somebody else said to me, you know, before I come back for a second interview, this is a really important decision for me, and I'm sure it'll be a very big decision for you as an employer. Is there an opportunity that I could come in and spend half a day in the organisation and just, you know, work within the department, 
the area that, that, that you're looking to advertise in because I want to make the right choice as much as you do. And I think getting the opportunity to, to get a feel of the culture of the organisation, I think it's really important for me. But also, I think you need to see me outside an interview environment. I looked at it, I blown away. I thought, wow. Um, but how many people would do that? But when you think about it, look at the consequences when it goes wrong. Imagine if she or he doesn't work out. It's a huge loss to the person, but also it's a big loss to the organisation. And I think people don't, you know, it's become a little bit of a, a sausage machine where first interview, second interview, yes, no, etc. But actually, I think for an organisation, it is a very big decision. So essentially, the book is really full of anecdotes and examples of what I've seen people do that have really stood out, the things that I've been able to address that I think make a difference between whether you get the job or not. And literally, chapter after chapter, it just walks you through the way that you should be thinking, how you should be planning, what you should be preparing for, and it takes you through the entire journey. By the time I got to writing the book, I genuinely believed, and I mean this sincerely, that if you followed the process of the book, you literally would be able to get the job of your dreams, providing all things being equal. Because I think there are certain things that if you do, it does make the difference of whether you're the crowd or you're the person who stands away from the crowd. Okay, I expect everyone in this room will rush out and buy that as soon as it comes available. It's, it's I want to finally um, uh, turn really to, to the issues of what's been going on recently in Pakistan. I know that you've used your your you know public profile to, to raise awareness about Pakistan and and also I think to try and persuade people to uh, give money and to help in various other ways. And we have a clip on this now that will show, and then maybe we'll have a. Pakistan's lingering flood crisis and the businessman who went to help because he thought the victims deserved better. I think they are clearly desperate and what really breaks my heart is when you see really old people who can't even walk are clamouring through. Food really ends up going to the fittest. The UN chief said this was the worst natural disaster he'd ever seen when he visited. And so, this is not about race, religion or politics, but simply humanity. And I believe we all have a responsibility to the destitute survivors. Near Nushera, a city in the northwest, an important moment for me. After a long drive, our delivery truck from Lahore arrived in one of the worst affected areas, the first to be hit when the floods began. It was the start of a steep learning curve as I never believed aid distribution could be that hard. The chaos which followed was distressing for me. In the Swat Valley in the north, which we flew into on a US Marine helicopter, the emergency situation became apparent. In parts, the once scenic views now resembled an earthquake zone. Thousands of miles of road and rail networks and key bridges had been engulfed or destroyed. The key challenge remained getting help to those still cut off from the outside world. As we landed in the town of Kalam, high in the valley, and unloaded supplies, its residents ran towards us, desperate not just for food, but simply to get out. I gave them what I could. People had been trapped amongst the ruins of their homes, with little choice but to leave. Sadly, space on board was far short of demand, 
but we did pick up children and women from a nearby village who found the journey quite terrifying. The look on people's faces of desperation and abandonment will stay with me for many years to come. I had been able to help, but still felt powerless knowing that the harsh reality was millions are still dependent on the outside world for survival. This is why I think we all need to act now, be it money, resources or time, before it's too late. They may have survived the floods, but how will they survive the aftermath without our help? Tremendous. Um, well, I know you're doing a lot in Pakistan. In fact, you're rebuilding a village. Would you like to tell me, tell us all a little bit about what you're doing and why and how? Um, I suppose like a lot of people, I saw the images on television um, about two months ago now. And when they said, you know, 20 million people have been affected, to me, it's quite a big number, but it, it doesn't really do anything. And, you know, day after day, they were saying that the aid wasn't getting through, and, and I just saw these pictures of villages literally underwater, and decided to, to really go for myself and, and see what really was happening, and why was the aid not getting through, and why was the government doing anything. And... Physically being on the ground, I very quickly realised that the reason why the aid wasn't getting through is because there wasn't enough of it. And the reason is because to feed 20 million people, if you can visualise the sheer scale of aid needed, there just was nowhere near that amount. So, of course, the media was picking on the areas where the aid just hadn't arrived. When I then went to, to, to speak to the government and asked them, you know, what is it that they were doing? And the, the, the general who's responsible explained to me that, you know, Pakistan is a fragile economy. They've just gone through, you know, a, a huge disaster with the earthquake. They haven't really recovered from that because that was devastating. And all of a sudden, to be landed with 20 million people, 3,500 villages underwater, thousands of miles of roads destroyed, thousands of miles of railway tracks, schools, government buildings, infrastructure. This was billions and billions of pounds. If you imagine the size of this landmass was bigger than the United Kingdom. So it's like visualising the whole of the UK underwater. And, you know, I mean, I've experienced a burst water pipe at home, and it does quite a bit of damage. If I imagine my entire home, every possession that I have, you know, underwater for three weeks, when I came back to my home, I would have nothing. So these people literally have lost everything. So my first trip, it was really about trying to understand what had happened, what I could do. Um, and I literally just gave out food. So, so I bought, you know, enough food for a thousand people and literally went out, you know, and bought a thousand loads of bread and rice and butter and whatever I, I could. Um, and then since I've been back for the last month, I've been you know, reflecting on, you know, did I really do enough? And, and I think that one of the things that, that I think we are very capable of, I think we can all make a difference, we can all do, you know, a little bit. And I just felt as an individual, I probably hadn't done enough just by providing food. And, you know, spoke to my daughter who, um, you know, has been watching some of the, the effects of what's happened on TV and said, you know, we should, you know, use the James Khan Foundation to try and create some awareness and and do something tangible. And so we came up with the concept of, you know, having given food, why don't we 
um, go and, and identify an entire village that we would reconstruct and, and give lives back to a thousand people and give them back what I believe in, in countries like Pakistan is everything, which is their home. And right now these people are literally destitute, living on streets, living under trees, living under flyovers, because once you lose your home, you, you know, you've lost everything, you've lost your dignity, because you're now dependent on that next aid truck that comes out to hand food out. So we came up with a concept and thought, that's what we'll do. So I think about two weeks ago, we flew out uh, to Pakistan, and we identified five villages, and we worked with Oxfam, Save the Children, Islamic Relief, Muslim Hands, a number of aid organizations who shortlisted villages for us. And you can imagine how difficult that is. You know, why would you pick one village versus another? Because each village, the issues and the stories are, are worse than the last one. And there was a particular village we went into where we just connected with the people. We, we recognized that these people were really a community that, that clearly they'd lost everything, but they were still determined to rebuild their lives. They already had started clearing their village. Some of them, you know, bearing in mind they have no money left, they've got no materials, but they were trying to do something to bring their life back. So we, we've picked a particular village, um, which has got 986 um, people, and we're building 127 homes, rebuilding the school, rebuilding the mosque, rebuilding the hospital, putting back the infrastructure, the roads, the power, the electricity, the drainage. And through the James Khan Foundation, we are launching an appeal to try and raise enough money to create what I think will be like a model village so that other people can hopefully recognize what you can really do. One of the biggest challenges that we had when we were trying to raise money was people saying, but you know, everybody's raising money for this, but how do we know the money's gonna get there? How do we know, because you know, everybody raises money. And so we thought actually, you know, that's quite a good observation because even when I've supported causes, I've asked the same question. So we've partnered with Google Earth and what Google have done is given us um, a dedicated channel. So when you go on and tap in the name of our village and you've donated, you can visibly see the house being reconstructed. So every day we have a photographer who's going to upload pictures at 12 o'clock. So the person donating will see the, the, the windows going in, the roof going in, and actually see the construction. So that for the first time, we're going to bring transparency into you know, a kind of a, a charitable environment. So the, the plan is that we've recognised the village, we've hired Halker Engineering from the UK, who are going to manage the, the physical execution of the project. And we plan to be back in Pakistan by the 21st of December, where the first batch of 20 homes will be delivered. Um, and I think what I've found is over the last 20 years as an entrepreneur, I think one of the things that, that I've learned is entrepreneurship gives you this incredible ability to believe in yourself and an incredible ability to recognize that you can almost do anything you can do. Whereas I think sometimes if you work within an organization, mentally, you're very confined to, to thinking in a particular way. I think because entrepreneurs take risks, and what I've done is, is use that kind of entrepreneurial passion. And, and when you think about the responsibility of building an entire village with bros, and it's way beyond what I've ever done before. But for some reason, I believe that I, I will be able to deliver that. And the village that I've selected, I've selected because it's a project that I want to deliver at any cost. Whatever happens, I will go back and I will make sure that those thousand people get their lives back, irrespective 
to whether I can't get the machine there, I can't buy the material, but I'll find a way. And, and really, well, I, I suppose my passion now is to use that expertise of entrepreneurship where I can make a difference, which is not about making money, but giving something back. I think, um, I mean, I, I've got many more questions, but I think um, we have a lot of people in this room, and I think a lot of them maybe also have questions. And I, that was a remarkable and moving, moving point. So maybe at this moment, uh, we've got, uh, I think, a roving, a roving microphone, are there just one, two? Um, and we'll take questions. Uh, why don't we start there? Hi, I'm Gillian O'Halloran from UCL. Um, I just wanted to know what the best and the worst business decisions you think are that you've ever made and what you've learned from those. Um, I think the best decision I made was um, to decide that I wanted to, to be in business um, and set up Alexander Mann, and, which was my first business. So always your first business is your first love. And I think for me... That really was what really set me, you know, on, on that journey to, to be an entrepreneur. You know, I think the worst decision um, was sitting next to Duncan Bannerton. I think. <laughs> Can you delete that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the front. Is it? Uh, good afternoon, James. Um, reflecting on your points about the problems of UK as being not entrepreneurial enough. Uh, I'm interested to ask what are you going to do in the future, basically. Because... Um, yes, no, go on. Um, because you clearly reached the peak in the current stage of your career, and you should be thinking about either you're going to develop Hamilton Broadshow in an international corporation, or you should be advising governments of countries, or doing something else. Are you offering me a job? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I, I get the question. Um, somebody asked me that recently. You know, where do you see yourself in ten years? Where do you see yourself in twenty years? Um, the truth is, you know, if I was doing exactly what I'm doing today, I would be extremely satisfied. Uh, I'm in a very fortunate position in life where I absolutely love what I do. I, I'm in a very interesting place where. I spend roughly two days a week on philanthropy, which you know, absolutely inspires and motivates me because it gives me a reason. It goes back to my original question. What is it? You know, why do people do what they do? And there has to be a reason. And for me today, I think the reason of using that experience and that passion to give something back, I find probably the most rewarding. I spend two days a week at Hamilton Bradshaw, which I absolutely adore because it's what I do, it's who I am. And I spend roughly two days a week uh, on television with dragons and, you know, whether it's CNBC or, you know, different TV stations, um, which actually is a lot of fun because it just takes me completely outside of my comfort zone and it gives me something completely different. Uh, and I think if, if I was doing that 20 years from now, God forbid dragons then survive that, um, I, I would be really happy. So I think, to me, it would really be more of the same. I, I have no aspirations of making Hamilton Bradshaw the biggest private equity firm. It's not really about that. 
it's not about having the biggest business because I think that there gets a point in your career where more money for the sake of it doesn't really change anything and I think money is fantastic when it makes a difference but there does come a point it stops changing anything you do and I think for me when that happens you need to find something else that motivates or inspires you so I'm not driven by that next deal but I need to do something and I, and I do something I really enjoy you know when I invested in Peel engineering in that car it wasn't about money I just thought it was a fun thing to do because my daughter Hannah you know it's very much about the environment she wants an electric car and every time I invest in you know like some of these silly ideas she says dad what are you going to do with that why can't you invest in something I can play with so I saw Peel and I thought you know what Hannah could have one of those <laughs> but it was 80 grand anyway <laughs> uh, um, yeah. hi James uh, I'm Charmindra firstly thank you for the opportunity for coming here today uh, my question is with a relation to Alexander Mann uh, I would say it was your baby your first love so how did you sort of choose to move away from the daily operations? How did you like sort of change your mindset and choose to delegate it to someone else, uh, your CEO? It's a very good question and I think the, the answer is it's a very, it was probably one of the most difficult A decisions and B processes because when you run your own business, because it is your passion and the people who work in that organization there because of you then you bring somebody else in who they don't really know who they really don't identify with and he somehow you know has to take on your legacy or your passion um, it was really really difficult for him and really difficult for me um, and eventually after about three months he came to me and said James you don't really need me because you keep interfering you know you're all over the place you tell me to do something and then you change your mind and rather than people coming to me, they keep going to you and you engage with them, you shouldn't be engaged with them. So here's my envelope, I'm leaving. So I said, no, no, you can't go because if you go, that means you know I can't grow the business that I'm trying to grow. And he said, well, you know, this place ain't big enough for both of us, so one of us is gonna leave. What do you mean? He said, I think you need to move out. <laughs> move out of where? He said, I think you need to leave the building because whilst you're in this building, you're always going to be the boss. They're always going to come to you and you're not, you don't need a CEO. I said, but where am I going to go then? This is my office. <laughs> he said, rent somewhere else. And literally, I mean, although we laugh, that's exactly what happened. I, I, until I left the building, the business was still essentially me and I did conflict him. Um, but it was the best decision that happened because you know uh, somebody had to cut the umbilical cord and break that connection and once I left the building I then was able actually to do my job and he did his job otherwise actually it didn't work so it was I think as any entrepreneur when you get to that position where you've grown your business to a size when you need to bring senior people in it really really is you know it almost felt like having a child that you had to get somebody else to look after but it was always going to be yours and you you, you, you gave it and you took it back and you gave it so for me it was a, it's a, it was a big drama but fortunately I did cut because he threw me out. Hi James, does that work? Um, my name is Juliet. Um, 
Now, what is the best way, without trying to talk to your PA, who won't tell me, to figure out that you're in your office so I can hand deliver you my business proposal? Sorry, Julia, I was so taken about with your earrings, I forgot the question. <laughs> well, you know, I try and impress. Okay, um, slowly ask the question. Slowly. Without trying to get in touch with your PA, who okay. won't give me the answer I need, how do I figure out when you are around in your office so I can give you my business proposal in person? Okay, are we, are we taking pictures tonight then? <laughs> so you have a business idea, do you? I have a business idea. I haven't put it together of sorts, but I know what I want to do. But I need a sort of entrepreneur mentor to help me guide me through it. Um. <laughs> no, I want your email address. <laughs> um. <laughs> your call oh here. Gosh, <laughs> Say that we're going to be tough. <laughs> uh, can I get my excuse? <laughs> I'm slightly Excellent. shaking, so you need to take me off on the offer. Okay. Okay. Let's. Um... Very good question. Yeah. <laughs> no answer, though. No answer. Over there. Um. Just want to say congratulations to your daughter for persuading you to come tonight. I've really enjoyed uh, this, so thank you, James. Um, talking about the world and your Britain uh, metaphor for a, for a second, what advice would you give to the government of Britain <laughs> on how Britain can compete over the next five, ten years in business uh, when we've got the ever-powerful competing BIC countries and the other emerging markets? I mean, what should Britain, what should our strategy be in the world when it comes to business? Um, good question. I think that it really takes me back to, to what I said. I think that um, this is a very, very critical part uh, and a very critical stage for the UK economy because the mere fact that in a room full of 300 people not one person said this is what should be in the shop window, my recommendation, without a question of doubt, should be that we should become you know, the, the, the centre of innovation, the centre of technology, the centre of ideas, because I think the quality of education that Britain provides, you know, the platform that we give our students is substantially better than a lot of other countries. I think we create the talent, we have people with ideas, the biggest challenge is that those ideas cannot be nurtured, they can't be facilitated. So I think unless Britain as a country recognises that we need a venture capital community that fosters some of those ideas, how will we exploit that opportunity? Because let's be blunt, you know, we don't have a really huge manufacturing base anymore. You know, financial services, you know, as an industry, how long can you survive just on one sector? You know, there's 60 million people in this country that's, you know, that, that Britain's bigger than the square mile. So to me, I absolutely believe that we should be seen as the centre of enterprise, the centre of entrepreneurship, you know, and, and build businesses that where you can manufacture them in the East, you can outsource them to India or China or whatever, but they should be based from here because I think, you know, China, whilst it's doing really well, we've got hundreds of years ahead of a country like that in terms of development, education, experience. So I think, to me, it's it, because when you talk to entrepreneurs, the biggest challenge they say is, where do I get the capital? The banks are not lending, there is no venture capital community, and, and really, beyond family and friends, it's a bit limited. So I think if I was the UK government today, I would do something about it. Because otherwise, who, where are the jobs going to come from? 
favour there. I think the government should do a dragon's den every Friday, I think. <laughs> what kind of advice would you give to a 16-year-old wanting to leave school and get a job in this current economic climate? Are you 16? Yeah. Okay. I thought that was a personal question. Um, a lot of it depends on what you want to do, really. Um, I don't think it's, it's as simple as me saying, you know, I think you should become a recruitment consultant or... I think it's about you. I think jobs should be matched to, to your individual skills and your passion. It depends on what inspires you, what motivates you. Where do you believe you would make the, the, the biggest difference? You know, the, when I recruit, I have a very unusual strategy. I don't fill vacancies. I identify people that I think can make a difference or that can make a contribution. Because I think ultimately people who succeed, they do things that they're naturally good at. But I'm not sure whether you can be naturally good when you're trying to put a square into a circle. So I think the question you should do is really look and decide for yourself, where do you think you're going to make the greatest contribution? So when you're sitting in front of an employer, you can offer something tangible to say, if you offered me something, this is what I can do for you. Until you can answer that question, it's quite difficult to, to decide whether it's going to be A or B. Hi, um, I'm a Royal Academy of Music graduate and... You're going to sing for us, are you? No, there's no piano, I'm afraid, tonight. But um, I was wondering, as a graduate now, I was thinking what's the best way I can get my music back into the public and benefit everyone as well as a kind of self-satisfaction. So I'm in some postgraduate halls at the moment and I collaborated with some students who are from other disciplines like management and business and we formed the Music Society together at Good Enough College, which is... Um, in central London at the moment and the projects that we've done so far the last concert was actually in aid of the Pakistan flood appeal and our next one is going to be within like the next five six weeks and it's in aid of the Prince's Trust and I know that you yourself have supported them and that you support a lot of youth projects we we're wondering we're at the point of kind of bringing on some key sponsors and contacts at the moment and would you... Not another pitch, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you be able, I mean, to kind of suggest how we can branch out to gain some key contacts down this avenue if you yourself, I mean, if you yourself wouldn't be interested because I know the kind of support that you've given to young people. <laughs> okay, after that very long-winded, so what's the punchline there? I mean? uh, we would like your support. Okay. <laughs> um, actually, you know, I think that, because as you know, I'm really passionate about the 20 million people in Pakistan and we need to do something. One of the ideas that I had was maybe we should release a single, you know, to, to kind of a bit like a feed the world, help the world type of idea. And I think as a music graduate, because at the moment, no one's actually done a single for, for, for the floods. And we are getting close to Christmas. And I think <laughs> it's a commercial opportunity now. Um, I think maybe with, with what you're doing in music, if you want to you know, get in touch with me to see, because we were thinking of actually identifying maybe some artists, some well-known bands or something to collaborate to create a single and maybe do something like that to use music as a way of creating awareness for you know, the, the, the victims in Pakistan. Because I... I genuinely believe these people, you know, winter's coming, these people will die. You know, when you've got no food, you've got no water, 
and even today, some of the, the, the visuals, you know, I'm doing a special programme for news at 10 tonight, you'll see that there are still villages underwater right now. The government doesn't have resources. Those people are dependent on private individuals or NGOs who are going to help them in this situation. So I think maybe to do something like using online, using social media to promote the song, to promote the single, I actually think could work. Um, so I think if you speak to you know, maybe Soul or somebody, and maybe we can make some music together. That'd be great. We're on okay. to it. One more, yeah? Um, my name is Gunan Joseph. I'm studying accounting and finance at LC. Accounting and finance? Yeah. So you're a bean counter, are you? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> capital. Clearly. <laughs> Actually, I'm from Pakistan. And oh, really bless. I appreciate your efforts, like whatever you're doing. It's really great, and the way you are doing is excellent. Uh, the question I want to ask is that, Mm. If, if philanthropy is uh, an important part of entrepreneurship, uh, we have example of Bill Gates, because there are two opposite things. The primary mo motive of an entrepreneur is to earn and to retain it into your business and invest. While in philanthropy, you have to, in, uh, you have to spend. So how does uh, these uh, two opposite things coexist? Um, I think they do actually, because when I, one of the reasons I got involved with the big issue to help the homeless was most charitable organizations are started with people who want to make a difference and who are very passionate about a cause but that doesn't really mean they can run a business it doesn't mean they're commercial and when i looked at the big issue i thought actually it's quite interesting because it's objective it's very noble but actually it is a business it is a publishing business it produces a magazine which it sells to the vendor who then sells it to the general public so it is absolutely a commercial concept. But it isn't run as a business. And people who run the big issue are not commercial. They're not entrepreneurs. So when they approached me and said, you know, would you become chairman? I said, I would become chairman, but then you've got to let me do the bit I do. So you focus on helping the homeless and let me run the business as a business. And in my first week, I said, how long has this been £1.50? And they said, oh God, you know, five years, six years. I said, why can't we put up the price by 20p? So there was eight people around the boardroom table, and I said, could you put your hand up if you can come up with a reason why I shouldn't put the price up by 20 pence? And of the eight people, nobody put their hand up. So I said to the marketing director, I said, how many copies do we sell a week? He said, 116,000. So I said to the finance director, do you have a calculator? He said, yeah. So could you tell me what's 116,000 times 20p a week? Times that by 52. I think you'll find it's roughly a million pounds. Now you guys have never made a million pounds profit in your life. You've been going for 18 years. But my objective with this organization is right now, you've barely, you're just about break even. This business should make a million pound profit. And this is our first year, I think we'll probably make half a million, which they've never made before. And it was that simple. It was just putting the price up. So I think using commercial entrepreneurship, because ultimately what happens is people lose sight of the fact that the cause is important, but you've got to make money. If you don't make money, you can't help people. So it, it, to me, and I've worked with lots of charitable organizations, I find the same thing. So I think if you are commercial, if you are entrepreneurship, you can use that skill to really make a difference. So the big issue, 
You know, we look after 2,500 homeless people. If we don't make any money, how do we help them? So my objective is if I do my bit, make money, actually we should be able to provide them you know, with a better life. So carry on bean counting. <laughs> Over there. Yeah, oh, we've um, got Will I'm, Smith. <laughs> I was thinking, um, with the current economic... Second, you can stand up. I, I... Yes, Will. Um, with, the common, common, um, with the current economic depression, and also obviously due to the various spending cuts that have been introduced yesterday, um, it's going to be increasingly difficult for um, new entrepreneurs and companies to gain capital. So what advice would you give to new, um, new entrepreneurs trying to break into competitive markets? It's and not going to be difficult because you're going to have amazing ideas because there is money out there. If you've got a good idea, trust me, it doesn't matter whether the market is good, bad or indifferent. If you've got something that you really believe in, even if you look... You know, when we were doing the new series of Dragon's Den, everybody said this is going to be really difficult, the market's really tough, you know, we probably won't do as many investments as we did the year before. But this year, we did 17 investments. It was a record in Dragon's Den. We didn't do those because of the economic climate. We did those because we liked the ideas. And I think what you have to believe is despite, you know, one of the businesses that I set up was in 1992 when there was a recession. You know, more businesses are set up in difficult market conditions than any other time. Because at that time, more people don't have an option of getting a job, so they start a business. So I think it's a myth. So, you know, economic cuts, good market, bad market, that's not a reason why you will or won't be successful. You will be successful because you have something that you believe in that you will convince somebody who's going to invest in you. So don't allow market conditions to prevent you from doing what you really believe is possible. Because you know I would. I, I would not allow the current market. That's not, a, that's not an excuse that I think is acceptable. One more. Yeah, last one. Got to make it a good one. Okay. Um, I, I have a friend who uh, just quit a big, uh, one of the large private equity funds and started up with a partner. And uh, they got an office uh, in, in town. and. Uh, <coughs> I was uh, having a lunch the other day with him and I was, was asking him about the biggest challenge and he said like it's deal sourcing. He said it's so hard when you just sit in the beginning and where do you find the deals? And uh, I understand now you built up a reputation and a network so sourcing must come more natural. But do you have any advice for a starting private equity entrepreneur how to actually get in touch with interesting deals? Um, obviously, when I set up Hamilton Bradshaw, I mean, I wasn't um, on Dragon's Den, so it was just a start-up business. And I think when you start any business, whether it's private equity, publishing, you know, there really is only one answer. It's called shoe leather. You know, you have to get out there and knock on doors, approach people, whether it's viral marketing, face-to-face, -face, telemarketing, networking, go to events, any business you are in, you know, if, if nobody knows about what you do, the business will never make it. So, you know, what, what did we do? We went to accountants, banks, lawyers, networking events, angel networks, because I was looking for deals. And in the beginning, it was difficult because nobody had heard of the firm, nobody knew what we were doing, and it was just knocking, you know, on every door you can. But it's the same. It's when I set up Alexander Mann, how did I start the business? So I think the key issue must be to, to make sure that when you have a business, 
that you shouldn't hide behind emails. It's not about email marketing. It's about face-to-face -face contact. It's about being out there, be seen, be heard, and make a presence. On that note... <laughs> well, uh, despite one of the questions, I think it's quite clear to me, at least, that James is nowhere near his peak yet. Uh, and there's a lot of up, uh, upside yet available. And I'd like to thank him so much for this fantastic <laughs>